our kids are dismissed to head on down. Find Molly in the back. And uh, while the kids are heading out, I'm going to ask you to find Mark 4 in your Bibles. And then uh, now that you're good and comfortable, go ahead and stand back up with me as we read God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Mark 4, 1 through 12, and uh, we're, we're um, talking about this issue, Jesus is the master teacher, and how he taught primarily was with parables, and so this parable is the parable of parables, okay, and what that means is this parable is... Um, his teaching on how to understand uh, all parables. So it's uh, pretty important as we grasp uh, Jesus' teaching style, but it says this, Mark 4, Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some fell, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell on, into good soil, produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Lord, um, we're approaching not only your teaching, but we're really approaching you for understanding, for clarity, but also, Lord, for a change of heart. Um, we pray that, that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do and transform uh, that uh, which in us, Lord, is dead, uh, that in us that is dark, that uh, needs the power of, of your grace, the power of your mercy, the power of your forgiveness, the power of your, your peace power of your love, Lord, that uh, can take anyone and uh, make them into your son and your daughter. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that you invite us to approach boldly, confidently, Lord, because of uh, the work done on the cross that we can have absolute um, certainty that we can come into your presence, Lord. Um, but we ask that as we do that, uh, we also have the humility to receive what you want to give us, the direction of your will, the, the power of, of your grace, Lord, to 
set us on a new path, uh, to uh, forgive that which is uh, behind us, Lord, and to have hope for that which is before us. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, um, we would begin to have your eyes, your, your understanding, your perspective, and your heart for those around us and for the things that uh, burden you, Lord, that we would be burdened, the things that give you joy, that they would give us joy, that we might really begin to resemble Christ in this world. And we thank you that uh, all these things are not only possible, but they are your will. And so that's what we ask, Lord. Give us a sense of your will for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is the greatest teacher um, in history that has ever walked the face of the earth. Do you agree? You agree because you're fans of Jesus, right? You love Jesus, you think that he was great, and so subjectively speaking, um, you're, you are somebody who would say, uh, I prefer Jesus over other teachers. And now you're starting to question my line of thinking here. Okay, so here's the thing, is that we're not just saying Jesus is the master teacher, or the greatest teacher, because we like Jesus, but um, we do like Jesus, all right, we, we love him and we are fans of Jesus. It's okay to be a fan of Jesus and as long as you're not just a fan of Jesus, that you're also a follower. But objectively speaking, he was the greatest teacher because um, the word tells us that he was the embodiment of the deity in human form. Okay, he is the incarnation of God, which means that while he was on the earth, um, he spoke for God, he revealed God by his action, by his words, by his healings, by his teachings, all, everything that he did, everything that he said, everything that uh, he experienced, okay, uh, revealed God, that, that he is the word of God made flesh, that's what John says, that uh, he became flesh, he took on the, the, the human form, but he reveals the nature of God, okay, so there's no way to compare that to any other human being that ever walked in the face of the earth. Would you agree? That's not a subjective thing that, well, I like Jesus, so I, I must believe that he was a great teacher. He was, in every respect, in every moment of his life, revealing God. Everything that came out of his mouth was a revelation of who God is. So um, he is objectively the greatest teacher because even though other people wrote scripture, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and they, they wrote down the things of God for us, the word of God, um, we have something in Christ that is far superior to that because they were still human beings uh, who, even though while they were writing, they were uh, not writing anything false, but in their life, they were not perfect, right? Just like any teacher today, while I might be hopefully, I mean, this is, this is what is uh, the, the main burden of preaching, is uh, there's a, such a, a need, and if, if a preacher doesn't feel this, then I, I mean, they shouldn't preach. I mean, that's just, I guess, my opinion. But there's such a need to speak the truth, and not only to speak the truth, but to have a direction and an inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that when you do proclaim what you believe the Word of God is saying, that you do it with 
confidence and conviction and with some sense of urgency and the desire to see people change, but there's such a responsibility to try to get it right. But guess what? I don't always get it right. And uh, that's no human being, no matter how well-intentioned they are, is going to get it right apart from Jesus Christ. He never got anything wrong. He's the greatest teacher. Nobody compares to him. Not only that, but Scripture tells us that he taught with authority, okay? He, and we see that all through Scripture. He taught with authority. Uh, the Roman, uh, or not the Roman, but the temple guards uh, were commanded to go and arrest Jesus when he was teaching at the temple. And I think I mentioned this last week, but uh, they, they actually um, could not do it. They could not bring themselves to do it. And they actually went back to the religious leaders. They said, we can't arrest him. We couldn't arrest him because no one has ever taught like him. We've never heard anyone teach like he teaches. He teaches with authority. And the word authority means, it actually comes from the Greek word exousia, okay? Exousia. Ex is like exit out of. Usia is uh, substance. And what Jesus was teaching was uh, out of the, the substance or the essence of, of himself, which is God. So that everything that he said had weight it had authority, it had power, it had meaning, it meant something, it was important. And they, they heard this and they could not bring themselves to arrest Jesus. They just couldn't do it. In fact, when he was arrested, possibly some of the same guards who had been commanded to arrest him before couldn't do it at the temple, went and found him at the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, in, in the Gospel of John, I believe, um, he says, who are you here to arrest? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they fall to the ground, right? And he says, who are you here to arrest? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I'm, I'm here. What are you waiting for? And just the very weight of his words. And the reality is that if he weren't willing for them to arrest him, they couldn't arrest him. They, they, nothing happened to Jesus that, that was on accident or wasn't a part of God's plan or wasn't something that he didn't permit, okay? He, he had to permit them to do that. He had to actually release the authority to allow them to arrest him in that moment or else they just couldn't have done it. That just boggles my mind to think about the person with that much substance in himself, that much power. I mean, he was the greatest teacher. And and here's the thing, is that with all of that, he chose, and this was, I mean, it's, it's the essence of his teaching. He chose to teach with parables. That was the, the main vehicle that he was going to use to, to explain um, and to reveal the, the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of God and the nature of salvation and who he was and how this whole plan of, of salvation works. He, he chose to use parables to do that. Um, he, in fact, it says that he never taught without parables. Uh, Matthew 13 and verse 34 says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Uh, Mark says the same thing uh, in uh, chapter 4, 34, says he did not speak to them without a parable. Privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Uh, but he's always teaching, revealing the truth and the word of God 
and he's using parables. So what is a, a parable? Okay, um, the, the word actually comes from a, 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 a combo word, <laughs> um, two words put together. One is para, which is like um, throwing beside um, or like a para ministry is a, is a parallel to a ministry. Uh, a paramedic is a person who comes alongside of a medic or, or, or somebody else. Uh, or a paralegal is somebody who comes alongside of a lawyer. Um, parallel is just beside. And then um, parable, okay, so uh, baleo is the secondary word here, or the primary word, which is that it's like ballistics. Anybody know what ballistics are? Who, who watches CSI? You always trying to figure out the ballistics, right? Which is, um, really, it's, we use it to talk about um, uh, bullets and shooting and that kind of thing, mostly. Uh, but, but all that is, is uh, you're throwing a bullet at a very high rate of speed and, and, and very precisely. But it just means, and very generally, to throw, okay? So you're throwing beside, uh, and that's what a parable is. We just transliterated the word into English. We didn't translate it. We just brought it right over into English. We throw something beside, and all it means is you're illustrating. You're, you're telling a story. You're, you're talking about something. You're giving an example. Um, Jesus uses this form of teaching uh, throughout his ministry. In fact, um, it is the, he never taught without using parables, is what the, the Bible tells us. He never, he never told a truth without sharing some kind of an illustration to give people a, a, a way to understand it. And this is strange because the very thing that we just read was that to you, and chapter 411 says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So the parable helps people to understand, like any illustration would, about something that is hard to grasp, okay? It's, it's this unique revelation of God's truth that's like, oh, okay, now that you've explained it that way, now I get it. But then he turns around in the very next moment, he says, but I'm teaching this way out to those outside of, of this group so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Does that sound strange to you? That he's talking about the very same teaching, the very same parable, the very same illustration that he just used. He says, that parable to you is revelation, but to them is concealment. How can the same teaching be both of those things? So the, the passage that he uh, quotes is actually from Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, I don't know if you're, you're remembering Isaiah chapter 6. It's one of the most famous um, uh, visions in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah in the throne room of God, right? And he sees God high and lifted up, and he's glorious, and he's holy, and he's so holy. He's got these angels circling the throne that are singing, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah, even as a prophet, even as a godly man, he knows that he is sinful. He is not worthy to be in the presence of God. He feels condemned. And he says, I'm a, I'm a man of perverse lips. I live among a people of perverse lips. And God actually commands that there would be 
a fire or coal taken from the altar, placed on his lips, and cleanse him. And you just imagine this moment for Isaiah feeling like God has forgiven his sin, God has cleansed him and made him worthy in some way, according to his own will, made him worthy. And, uh, and now he he's, feels that peace. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. How many of you have ever felt like you were weighted down by your own sin, confusion, darkness, um, unworthiness, and because of God's grace and his love, somehow, whether it's worship, prayer, somebody came around you, um, uh, encouraged you, maybe it was a message, maybe it was an experience at some you know, camp or some religious event, and you just felt like that weight was lifted. You ever felt that? And like whatever was past was past, and, and now you and God were, were right. Like you were just, you were good, and God was good with you, and you kind of had that peace. Isaiah begins to, to feel that, like the weight of what he could not uh, deal with in his own strength, his own righteousness, his own ability was just taken away, and God says, I forgive you, I love you, and I want to use you. And immediately what happens is that God says, who's going to go and tell the, the rest of the world about, about this, about this opportunity? And Isaiah says, I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> go ahead, send me. And uh, what happens is actually, um, in some ways, very strange. Let's just turn to Isaiah chapter 6, just, just for fun. After he's cleansed and he says, here, send me, God says to him, okay, go and say to the people this, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, so that's... That's the message, that's the essence of what he's saying that Isaiah is going to tell them. He's going to go and speak to them the word of God. We have 66 chapters of, of the revelation that God gave to Isaiah for the people of his day. And he says, go and tell them my word, but guess what's going to happen? You're going to reveal the nature of God and the holiness of God and the requirements of God and the sinfulness of the people's hearts and the fact that there's, they, they have not come to a place of repentance and they have not obeyed my commands and they're under judgment and they're going to continue to be under judgment until they turn and repent, but they're not going to get it. And you're going to keep preaching to them for your whole life for years and years and years and years and years. And they're never going to get it. They're not going to accept your word. It's going to be the word of God, but they're never going to come to a place of accepting it, it, this word. Sound good? It, God is revealing the truth, but they're not getting it. And he says, uh, how long, <laughs> O Lord? He sa and God says, well, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. He, he says, basically, until all the judgment is poured out, and then, even then, 
a little bit more judgments poured out, and there's just like a tiny remnant in the land. Just keep preaching the word of God. Does that sound encouraging to you? We have no record of, of uh, Isaiah's ministry ever really um, accomplishing any converts. Do you know that? A long life of speaking, preaching, a revelation of God, and no converts. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would be frustrating. And Jesus is saying, I don't know if you're getting this yet, Jesus is saying, this is what he is doing in his parables. He is proclaiming a revelation from God, and not just an explanation of the Old Testament, okay? Jesus does explain the Old Testament a little bit, but he's a new kind of teacher. He's not like the teachers of his day that they used parables, they used stories and illustrations to talk about Old Testament laws and, and teachings to try to help people understand. Jesus, as the Word of God in the flesh, is giving them a new revelation of who God is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he's telling them the very words of God and by and large, even though he's got crowds coming around and listening to what he's saying, they're not getting it. He's teaching them the word of God, and they're not receiving it. And he tells them, he says, the same teaching that you're getting, that you receive, they're going to get the same teaching, and they're going to be confused by it. And they're going to walk away scratching their heads like, I, I have no idea what he's talking about. And so he says in verse 13, do you not understand this parable about the sower and the soils, okay, the seeds and the soils? How then will you understand all parables? This is the parable of parables. This is Jesus saying, if you want to know what the, the, the interpretation or the motive or the understanding of everything that I'm going to teach, then you got to understand this story. This story is going to explain all of it. So let's dive into it. What does he say? He explains it. It's pretty simple, actually. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So what we have is the first um, understanding of what is being sown. The seed is what? The word, okay? And the word is, um, in general, okay, if we take this, this teaching, in general, the word is the whole scripture, all revelation of what God has said in his word in the Bible. But he's also specifically talking about his teaching or his parables. So he's going to sow a new revelation that people didn't previously have before until he came, because when Jesus came, he revealed the fullness, okay, of who God is. Before that, they had a picture, they had an understanding, but now Jesus is going to reveal the whole picture. He says, this is the word. I'm sowing the word, and yet some people, they're not going to get it. Satan's going to take that, that seed and uh, immediately remove it. These, uh, the ones on rocky uh, soil, okay, verse 16, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecutions arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
Okay, and so what happens here is that I believe that what he's talking about is the soil is the heart. Okay, it's the human heart. Those who, with a hard heart, this, the seed, the word of God does not penetrate at all. It just, it's gone immediately. Um, they come to church, they hear, they understand, they know what it means, but there's no desire to do anything with what God's saying, and so they leave, and there's no rem- remembrance. There's no recognition. There's no grasp of any urgency about what, of what's been said, what's been communicated, revealed. But that's not really most people. Okay, that's some people. That's not most people. The next one is there are soft parts, parts in most people's hearts. Soft parts in most people's hearts. Okay, say that five times. But there's rocky parts. So what that is is the Word of God might get to your particular situation. You might say, I like that. Um, yeah, I want God to heal my marriage. And uh, so I'm going to come and I'm going to listen to the message. And I'm going to go to church because I really want a good marriage. And, uh, and, and if I can somehow make that happen, then great. I trust Jesus for that. But then over here, there's um, all the other things that are the hard parts of your heart. I don't want to hear about pornography, and I don't want to hear about alcohol, and I don't want to hear about my language, and I don't want to hear about whatever, okay? Uh, just tell me how to have a good marriage. And so they receive Jesus for a good marriage, but they reject Jesus for all the other things that he's trying to deal with in their life. And what happens is that all those other things choke the word out, and it just won't have an effect, because he doesn't just want one compartment of your life, you know that? He doesn't want just one area of your life, he wants the whole thing. So it gets choked out. And so the other one is similar, um, but it's uh, the weeds uh, are also planted in that heart. And he says that they grow up together. Um, Verse 18, the others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so we have lots of interests, because I'm, I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but I'm also interested in all these other things. And I'm interested in, in my success, and I'm interested in my advancement, and I'm interested in, in my hobbies, and I'm interested in, in the things that I like to do and that I'm addicted to. And so if I can have all those things together, great, but if I can't, then guess what's going to win? All the other things that compete with following Jesus. And then he says, verse 20, but those who are sown on the good soil are those who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And so what's happening there is that the word of God comes in and you're submitted to whatever God's will is. There comes a point where, for some people, and, and I wish this were true in every single case, but it's just, it's not. But for some people, um, there comes a point where God's will has to be better than anything I'm, I'm working on. I, my life is not going the way that I want it. And if God has a plan, then I want to know what it is. And I'm willing to just set everything else aside and say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. And that fertile soft heart that is ready to just receive God's will 
His word is the one that is going to actually be transformed by the word of Christ. How do you actually get there? You know, that's an interesting issue. There's a, a couple of words. He says, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, the word in Greek is akue, uh, akue. It's the word that we translate uh, acoustics. Everybody has ears, okay? Um, different levels of the ability to hear, you know, physically, physiologically, okay? But, but if you've heard, you've understood the word of God, that's one thing. But there's another word that's a, a compound word in Greek, which is hupokune, okay? And that is, you can kind of hear the, the first part of it, uh, hupo is, is the word that we get hyper, and then it's combined with acoustics. So hyperacoustics, hyperhearing, superhearing. Um, where does, what is that word translated into in English? Do you know? Of course you don't. I, I just threw this on you all of a sudden. And the word that might surprise you is obedience. Hyperhearing is not hyperunderstanding. It's not superintelligence. It's not uh, this wonderful grasp of, of these deep truths. It is, it is the willingness to say yes to God, to say yes to Jesus, and to just step into a place of, of your will be done. I don't know. I'm going to put my will aside and just do what you want me to do. And you might not know everything. You don't have to know everything. It's just what you do know and what you do understand. You are willing to put that into practice. And from there, God takes you to another step and another step as you put into practice the things that you understand. How does this happen? Jesus says that if you love me, you will do what? Obey my commands. And there's something deeply tied together between this obedience and loving Jesus. In fact, I think the, the tie is so irremovable that what is actually happening is that in the Word of God, we are told over and over and over um, how much God loves us. In fact, I mean, it is the primary message of this book to reveal to the world that God loves you deeply. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you sacrificially. In fact, John 3.16 tells us, it kind of condenses it all down into one verse. God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus says that no one has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He's calling you friends. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm going to tell you something that will shock you. God's love for you will not save you. God loves everybody. He absolutely loves every single person in this room. He loves every per person listening, watching on Facebook, online, wherever. He loves every person unconditionally, without question. He's proven it by sending his own son, and yet many people are not saved. Why? Because his message of his love for you is an invitation for you to love him. And if you do not respond by loving him back, then you are not saved. It's half a step of belief 
and it's another half a step of, of loving him. I love you, Jesus. I can't imagine my life without you. I can't live without you. I want what you want for me. I know that you have your, my best intentions at heart. You, you want what is best for me. I believe that. I trust that. And even though I don't know what that might look like, it might mean a life of service that I, I can't really imagine. It might mean giving up some things that I like. It might mean a direction of, of, of my path that I didn't really have intended for my own life. I don't know what that means. When you get to that point of loving Jesus, it's, it doesn't necessarily matter. It, it doesn't matter. Because this life is something that he created. He designed it. He knows exactly what, it, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I'm made for, where I should go, where I'm going to be most fulfilled, where I'm going to be uh, weak, where I'm going to be strong. He understands all those things. And all I have to do is just lay that life down before him and say, you use it for whatever you want. I'm sure Isaiah didn't think that he was going to become the, uh, the martyr of his day when he had this moment with the Lord that said, uh, here's, here's the glory of God and, and you're changed by it. And he says, okay, now you go and you preach to these people, but they're not going to accept it. I do wonder if maybe he was just as excited and joyful about preaching the word of God to people who never received it as he would have been to people who would receive it because he did what he was called to do. So when Jesus restores Peter in John chapter 21, you remember what he says to Peter? Peter had denied Jesus three times. He had betrayed him as, as bad as Judas, okay? Maybe, and I've said this before, maybe even worse in a way. He confessed love for Jesus, and yet when it came to the moment, he says, I don't know him, I don't know him. And in fact, he calls down curses on himself. Basically, calling down the curse of God on him if, he, if he's lying. Swearing to God that he does not know Jesus. Can you imagine that? And what the Bible says is that Jesus was right there and he turned and he looked at him on that third time that he's cursing himself, saying he doesn't know Jesus. No wonder he went out and wept bitterly. He thought he was done. And Jesus restores him and he says, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Three times. He doesn't say, do you believe in me? He says, do you love me? And here's, here's what I got to say. Two things and I'll be done. First of all, there are a lot of people who understand perfectly what I'm telling you right now. Have no question, no, no doubt about what it means. And still your heart is so hard that it's not going to make one bit of difference in your life. And I'm, I'm saying that because I, I am hoping that maybe just hearing that will crack the hardness of your heart. Whatever your will is, whatever it is that you're holding back from God, that you think that you just don't need him for whatever reason, that that would crack and you would say, I don't know why I'm not willing to love God 
But that's your issue. It's not an understanding issue. It's not a truth issue. It's not a question issue. It's a love issue. It's your will issue. And you're holding it back because you want to. And if you just hear that, maybe it'd cause at least enough of a doubt or a question in your own heart about why you're doing that to cause you to reconsider. There was a rich young man who came to Jesus and uh, he said, good teacher, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, first of all, why do you call me good? Only God is good. It's not really about Jesus because Jesus is God. He's really talking about him. He says, well, what does the law say? What do you, how do you read that? Um, love God. Um, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't kill. And uh, Jesus says, okay, do that. You'll be saved. And he says, well, I've been doing that since I was a kid. This is, Jesus says, okay, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the, the Bible says that he walked away sad because he had great wealth. What's interesting is that, according to the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Lord, we confess our love for you. God, we can proclaim it all day, every day. You love us. We know that you do. We know that your word says that. And Lord, we're thankful for that because it does give us the confidence and the assurance and the hope and the peace that it is an open invitation. Anyone, everyone who would respond to that love with love will be saved. That when we trust Jesus, it's not just an intellectual belief that you're the Messiah. Lord, we, we know that you love us and we know that we've been called to love you back. The great command in Scripture is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Lord, we can't change anybody. I can't change anybody's heart. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin to move, soften, begin to do that work of calling confirming, drawing. You said if you were lifted up, you would draw all men to yourself, Lord. We're lifting you up right now. You are not only the great teacher, you're the great I am, the great savior, the great redeemer, the greatest friend we've ever had or could ever have. And Lord, if that's not enough, we... We don't know what else you could be. And so we love you. And we pray that the world would love you too. And we'll give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to invite you this morning.
if the Lord is breaking your heart for him to just come and confess your love to him, the altar is a place for you to be able to do that. We invite you to do that. We don't require that you do that. We just give you the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And sometimes an act of humility, just to come and kneel, is enough to physically see a, a change that's spiritually happening. Amen? Let's stand and sing.